Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Trans Regrets Newbie Presents the Bible. I have a very special guest with me today. Uh, we are going to be discussing the, uh, the passage in Matthew 21, uh, Jesus cleansing the temple, as well as how that's reflected across some of the other Gospels. Please welcome the very funny and very talented Ember Knight. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for joining me. We, um, we uh, had a, a podcast experience uh what it must have been a year and a half ago at this point Mm -hmm. on a a certain jackass podcast that you were doing the infamous jackass podcast (laughs) (laughs) uh it was really it was really fun uh and it was a it was really nice to chat and um ash the um the person who used to produce and edit this show um suggested that you would be an excellent guest and and i'm so glad that we started talking because i feel like you um you have some interesting perspectives on things and we were talking a little bit before we started the episode about about um you know church church going and whatnot and and obviously i think we have a really good passage to um, to talk about today too so great passage uh before we go into that why don't you tell folks a little bit about yourself and how faith plays a part in your life oh beautiful um well, my name is Ember, and uh, I'm an artist, multidisciplinary, um, and faith. I was born into a a New Age church, the Agape Church of Religious Science, which is um, headed by Dr. Reverend Michael Beckwith. He is one of the guys from the The Secret, if you remember, um, with mm, the gold yeah. seal, Law of Attraction. Uh, yeah. That was his project. Um, but the way before the secret blew up, he had a little church um, with uh, Ricky Byers before she became his wife, and they're now divorced. Ricky was the uh, the choir director, and she wrote all of the music. They had a little church together, and my parents were part of it. Um, and it was a science of mind church. It was a new age church, um, non-denominational in the broadest possible sense. So I grew up singing in that choir, being a soloist in that choir as a young child. And I got very lucky, I think. You know, there's a lot about my life that has been hard and and bullshit, but my relationship with faith has always been very clean and very, um, I've always felt like I am allowed to have a personal relationship with my higher power. And I feel that um, God is fundamentally good and every time I come back to my faith, I feel, I feel welcomed. I feel comfortable. Um, I feel that that guilt comes from me. It doesn't come from. It doesn't come from God. I guess yeah. if that makes sense. Yeah. That's good. So many people who, um, you know, grew up in various denominations, like have have a lot of baggage associated with it. Absolutely. Uh, do you think that maybe you're having been raised in a church that was so like open-minded as far as um denomination wise like that might have uh, unloaded or loosed some of the baggage that some people have like growing up catholic oh my god growing up pentecostal i can't imagine i can't imagine growing up catholic um (laughs) 
yeah, I mean, I got baggage from my parents. I got baggage from, you know, being poor. I got baggage from, you know, sex stuff, all, all kinds of other things I have baggage from, but I very weirdly have just a reverse experience of religion than a lot of people my age or in our general age group who, who grew up with it. And I don't know if it's that it was non-denominational so much as that it was like positivity centered. It was like a okay. very inclusive, like very multiracial, predominantly black leadership, um, very much just focused on on the individual having a positive relationship with a higher power and 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 knowing and feeling that God is good and all things are are good, even when we don't understand them. And that was just and and teachings were coming from, you know, all types of texts and, and all, all kinds of places, but they were very much selected to reinforce um, a positive message. And in that way, it was kind of, you know, bordering on like a self-help seminar, more so than most <laughs> churches, for sure, for sure. There's a, there's like a, um, an area where that kind of uh, mission or that kind of uh, evangelism can kind of like border into its own level of toxicity in a way. Absolutely. Um, it's hard to explain because it's like, well, what, you know, what about making you feel good about yourself? Like, isn't a good thing. Um, but when it turns, it can like cross over from, um, you know, positive reinforcement or the sort of gospel of, of positivity into like a gospel of self and, um, like sort of worship of, uh, like yourself and your own accomplishments and it's like good to be proud of yourself and what you've done but then there's also like you know there's a creator responsible for yourself as a creation Absolutely. so anything that you do stems stems from that and um that's really it's really interesting yeah it's almost like uh you know the the friend who always takes your side even when it would be better if they gave you constructive criticism <laughs> you know the friend's like well he's stupid it's like once in a while someone should tell me that my behavior is wrong, you know, because I'll be Actually, ultimately happier. <laughs> yeah, I'll be I'll be happier if I can learn from this and get better as opposed to, you know, always thinking that I'm right. And that there yeah, is a little yeah, of that for sure. I've had some therapists like that. Yeah, it's not helpful. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> One needs to be challenged to grow. And, uh, and you know, wh those challenges can come from, from any place. Actually, that kind of ties into the the passage that we're going to talk about here because um, this is uh, a, a story that takes place in all four of the Gospels. There's not a lot of these um, events that take place um, in real time. Some of the parables cross over all the Gospels, and but there's there's very few um, that are consistent across all four of the Gospels. And this one is one that I feel like can be twisted and used for um, a lot of different sort of political or theological viewpoints that are very, very easy. It's very easy to misconstrue. It's very easy to use it as proof text for something that you're, that you're trying to argue. And what I would hope that we can do during this conversation is to try to avoid using it as like, this is a, um, you know, uh, an, an okay from God to like, you know, our, build our political platform or, you know, take issue with particular, um, or, or make our own particular message the one that's like the true message. Um, when I brought this up, you obviously were at least somewhat familiar with it. 
what what did you first think of when I when I brought this passage up as a possibility to talk about? I actually about? wasn't so familiar with it. I had to do a little reading. Um, my Bible knowledge is spotty, I'll be honest. Um, but when I first when I first took a look at it and I read a couple of interpretations, um, what jumped out to me, I guess we kind of see in Jesus what we want to see or like we see ourselves reflected. You know, it's kind of, we, we kind of make God in our own image. But what, what jumps yeah. out to me <laughs> when, uh, when I read the New Testament um, is... when he's grumpy and impatient, like moments that are kind of sus, very human behavior. And so when I read this passage, I wasn't really thinking about like higher ultimate meaning or interpretation. Like I just saw somebody doing a very harsh vibe check. (laughs) Like if you imagine someone walking into a space and flipping a table over, there's nothing chill about that. And like, (laughs) so I just picture it happening and I'm like, damn, like, he really felt that the vibe was off, and he was mad. <laughs> well, Jesus Jesus does have a vibe that I think a lot of people can, can kind of say, okay, well, this is what Jesus was all about, right? Peace, love, welcoming, you know, um, uh, fellowship, uh, you know, bringing in people from the margins and making everybody feel welcome and loved and express that love. And, and usually pacifism is kind of the main word that Jesus preaches. But here we see an angry Jesus in a way that I think challenges a lot of people's views of this guy who who otherwise, you know, um, preaches to, you know, self-efface and sacrifice rather than lash out and defend. And um, so there's like a number of reasons why we could speculate. Jesus felt so particular about this point, right? Like, the simplest explanation that I've heard was that, well, this is his dad's house. Like, how would you feel if you went into your dad's house and someone was throwing a party there or something? You'd get mad, too. You'd flip a table. I think that's a little a little bit of an oversimplification of what's going on here. Um, you can understand why um, he might... So, uh, first, let's before I go into that, let's... Um, sort of compare these across all the Gospels. We're just going to really focus on the text in in the Matthew portion of this, but I kind of want to compare the way it's presented in all four of the Gospels. Um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all have very similar sort of retellings of this uh, story. John, as John often does, presents a different view of it with slightly different words, and uh, and actually implies that Jesus had like a weapon with him, like a scourge of cords that he was like chasing people out of the temple with. <laughs> um, in stare, yeah, in, in true it. John fashion, yeah, he makes like a, he makes a, a real show of it. Um, you know, the other main difference is that this passage takes place in the latter part of all of the Gospels, but because John starts at John the Baptist, uh, it happens in John 2 which is right at the beginning of the story. And, and you can imagine if, if John was your only version of the Gospels, you'd think like this would give you a very different idea of what Jesus was all about if this is one of the first stories that you read about him. Um, so, you know, generally, story is 
Jesus is um, back in Jerusalem. He enters the temple, and there are people who are selling uh, livestock and changing money from foreign currency to uh, the currency of Jerusalem. Um, And he feels as though this is uh, an affront to what should be a holy place, like a sacred place and a place of prayer. And the reason why they're there is not actually all that outrageous. People would offer animal sacrifices in these temples. That's why people were selling livestock, to have them sacrificed. And obviously, if you came from a far-off land and you had only the currency of what you brought with you, you wouldn't be able to do business and buy a piece of livestock to sacrifice unless you could change your money. Um, But the implication is that they were kind of making a profit off of this or being in some way predatorial. And I don't know about you, but this kind of puts a lot of alarm bells off in my head with how people drum up financial support like televangelists or um, the old prosperity gospel of send in, you know, send in this much money and you'll be rewarded threefold. Um, Makes me think of the same televangelist that I feel like I beat up on the show a million times. So I won't even mention his name again. (laughs) But uh, the financial aspect of faith is an interesting one, right? The, The church that you go to now, how do they, how do they ask for offerings? Because uh, it's, it's different in every church I've ever been to. It seems like they have a very different approach to it. I don't think very much comes in. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> if I were to venture to guess, I would say it's like $20. Like, I don't think they are really, it, it's really a labor of love hanging on by a thread type of vibe. And I think that's part of what me and my partner, Bobby, liked about it, is we could see that there was not like, a logical operation going on here mm-hmm. and just on a quick side note like to balance that out this church ends up over and over in the newspaper about some controversy because they'll like let a group of anarchists use the basement or something <laughs> and then our pastor will have to like he won't just like n- not do anything like he'll write a letter to the la times about why he should be allowed to give it to to the anarchist organization <laughs> like he'll really think about it um, but they don't make any fucking money. Uh, <laughs> no money. <laughs> but that's, I mean, that's it's admirable. I mean, it's it's difficult to run an operational. We we don't think. I think like okay, churches. A lot of people, atheists especially, will criticize the church in general. It's sure. like, well, you're tax exempt. Yeah. You don't have to pay taxes, so you know this can very quickly become like a shelter for people to get rich or to get richer, and uh, and that's not. Most churches, you go no. to most churches, and most of them are kind of broke. Yeah, especially they now. They all have fog machines. <laughs> I feel like I don't know if you feel this, but whenever I walk into a church, I feel like because I'm under fifty, like everyone just descends. They're like, "Hey," because <laughs> they're not going to be able. Like a lot of these places just blatantly won't be in business in yeah. the next twenty years. Unless there's, I mean, we could go on a tangent. There, there could be, there's an interesting resurgence going on right now, but who knows what's going to happen. This is interesting to talk about because it, it, and, you know, tangent or no tangent, it might be worth mentioning that, like, we don't, I, personally, I think our generation 
um, I don't know what age you are, but you know we're probably around uh, the same age. And um, millennials and Gen Z. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. I won't either. <laughs> I, I'm really cute. Um, <laughs> millennials and Gen Z have a reputation for being godless. Yeah. That's not really true. It's not. It's, it's a it's a misconception. It's something that I think people read into because church attendance is lower in our generation and 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 I think that people think well if you're not going to church then you're not a believer. It, it it's wrong. It's wrong in a number of ways, but the the main way is that like a lot of people that I talk to are actually more open-minded about faith than you might assume. But they have been either wounded by the church, mm-hmm. mistreated by the church, mm-hmm. or they haven't found a church that accepts them for who they are or yeah. doesn't feel right to them. They, they did a vibe check and they didn't flip any tables over, yeah. but they turned around and left. It's um, it's interesting. I do see a resurgence, though, and I'm glad you, you said that because it there's there's some kind of revival going on. And, of course, it's like my dream that that people will just you know not necessarily that everyone will just follow the same faith that I am although I think that would be great and everything but like that people would get in touch with their spiritual side again Mm -hmm. well this is you know if I was just gonna sketch or make a guess I would say that church attendance has been in decline starting the early 60s up until now but because of that now there are more people whose parents didn't make them go to church And so Mm -hmm. it's more possible, I imagine, especially for a lot of Gen Z individuals to create their own association or a fresh fresh association. Um, And it's coming in, I don't know if you've noticed this, it's coming in very interestingly through the realm of irony in like (laughs) the Tradcath movement and also and in memes and... uh, you know, it, it's impossible not to encounter, which is very interesting because, A, it makes it viable and cool. But on the flip side of that, the sting is that it's weirdly associated with, like, the alt-right or being edgy. Yeah. And that is such, that's just a very interesting place to be now. Like, if I say that I love God, people are like, are you joking or are you, or are you hateful or both? <laughs> <laughs> like it's very the, there's no consensus over what this movement is but it snuck in through irony and now it's in this sort of gray edgy space it is it's um okay so there is it's such an odd thing that same reaction um people have brought up like when i've mentioned that i'm a christian or they'll see like i i wear a what would jesus do bracelet uh, and people think it's it's like a ironic or something like that it's like no i believe in a god of love and i believe that like following the teachings of uh you know the christ on earth is a good way for me to treat other people in in a loving way and and in that way like you know i'm not a reactionary i'm not a conservative i am just a person of faith i guess (laughs) yeah it's um I don't know if that's a dead end because I feel, I feel like there's no way to unprogram a lot of people's um, negative association mm-hmm. with Christianity and Christianity specifically in this country because that is that was the major religion that was practiced here. And so a lot of people just have this assumption that if you 
you know, believe this, if you believe in this God, then you must have these opinions. And I think that this passage in Matthew signifies something that we may be seeing right now happening in the church, and that is sort of a flipping of the tables mm-hmm. in regards to uh, how we practice, how we gather, and what is most important. Um, Jesus enters a temple where people are exchanging money and doing business inside of a house of worship because to the church at the time that Jesus would have walked into, the ritual of sacrifice, the ritual of the getting the animal, killing it, and off, you know, offering it to be killed was what was most important, not the faith that that action exhibited. And, and Jesus walks in and immediately says, no, this is not what this place is here for. This is a house of prayer. Um, should we read it? Yeah, please. We should just read it, right? Okay. So I'm going back to the, to the ESV for this passage for now. I may jump uh, between a few, but we're going to start at Matthew 21 at verse 12. It says, And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, And the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read, Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out to the city of Bethany and lodged there. Uh, So, cool moment, right? He, like, immediately walks in. (laughs) He, like, immediately walks in and flips the script. Um, The passage that he uses in verse 16 that he quotes is from Psalm 8, which is, for some people's interpretation of this, one of the places where Jesus says, I am God, without actually saying, I am God. Because in that psalm, it said that, you know, the, the... the mouths of infants and nursing babies will cry, you know, that will the offer basically their praise to the Lord. And that would be Jesus essentially saying, yeah, they're praising me. They're saying Hosanna to me because I am the son of David and I am the son of God. And of course, to the chief priests at the time, very scandalous, right? They're very stuck in their ways. So we see a few passages here. It is one of the mysteries to me about Jesus that he never actually says, I am God, right? There's nowhere in any of the Gospels where he says this. But he kind of walks in with this air of, we're here to do some great things, and then he sees what what he considers to be a malformation of practice, have you ever noticed anything in like a church that you've been to that felt like it was a table that needed to be turned over? <laughs> yeah, certainly. And I would say I have kind of a muddy relationship between 
religion and art. <laughs> Just honestly, because the church I was raised in, I was like singing in the choir starting when I was three years old and then I grew up to be a performer and I just it's it's like very important to me um and I I have done very (laughs) I've done very rude things at shows that were table turning events and I have gotten in a lot of trouble and been you know excommunicated from certain venues um I would say while this while this passage is not violent it does something that in the moment would feel unthinkable there's like invisible rules of conduct going on and to and I if you do this in life, if you even present in a certain way that people feels like the invisible rules do not allow, like it's very upsetting to people to accommodate certain behavior, certain a- like during this time in my life, like seven years ago, I was really pushing boundaries as much as I could in these areas. And I would do something like lie down on the floor at an event and get kicked out like within 30 seconds someone would be like no that's not allowed and I would just be out and uh I I thought about it a lot I was like what are these things aren't rules but but there are things you can do that that are not like a good story to tell later but if you do them it will be so upsetting to the other people in the space because there's an expectation of where of where the moment is going where the evening is going where the vibe is going And I guess that feels relevant to this because Jesus' death replaced the need to sacrifice animals for cleanliness, you know? So he really is coming in and, like, smashing this previous thing and being like, no, that's out. Let me show you Mm -hmm. what's in. Heals some people. And, like, then is... (laughs) And then is crucified. Like it's the beginning of you guys don't have to do that anymore kind of I'm sorry this got uh, this thought got messy but I guess when you make a change like that it is going to be really disruptive to people's daily lives they're gonna be mad Uh, (laughs) the priests of the temple are mad their day is ruined they feel that Mm -hmm. you know when you're disrespected in that way you kind of have no choice except to like be mad at the person and try to justify your own actions like it it's not it's not a pacifist action it's not a chill action and not everybody is happy at the end of that day um It, it seems to me like what jesus is trying to express here is not that like practice of the sacrifice itself was the problem no right it was that it became the thing that trumped what inspired the practice in the first place and then you know he obviously is expressing and it's it's signifying a major change of saying yeah that sacrifice is no longer necessary nor is it sufficient i don't think for what jesus is planning to do um the sacrifice will be made and it will be so much more and so much better than any pigeons that you can buy in a church and kill. 
So, you know, let me show you what God is capable of without you having to turn this into some sort of a, a, a business affair, a financial transaction. And it really exemplifies the sort of pharisaical attitude that, that a, a lot of church leaders had at the time, which was this is the routine that we go through, the rules that we've set in place are essentially the only way to observe and to worship and to acknowledge the presence of God. And, uh, and that's, that's something that plays out, we see in Christian churches all over the place, not obviously with money changing and with animal sacrifice, but we see a lot of churches who are, are very, very stuck in their ways with just regard to ritual and how they worship, let alone people who are outside of their worldview, people who exist in a way that doesn't make sense to them, or, or people whose, you know, whose expression of themselves is somehow, you know, blasphemous or heretical. Absolutely. What I think that um, the easy. The reason why this passage is so easy to use as ammo for whatever political point you're trying to make is because from the left, from the right, from the orthodox, from the progressive, on all sides, we can see things happening in churches that we feel as though are not an accurate or adequate representation of what the faith needs to be, or are not a... Um, are not a pure enough expression of, you know, how we worship or how we should be worshiping God. And that's a slippery slope. Because someone could say, uh, just as easily as a progressive Christian could walk into a conservative church and see how they do business. And it is, in some ways, all churches are inherently, in some way or another, a business. They have to have... Um, people who are in charge managing the operation they have to have staff they have to um, put on a show essentially every every week sometimes multiple times a week but a conservative christian could walk into a progressive church see what they're doing and say well this is this is just like the money changers in the temple i'm going to flip this table over and and on the flip side of that progressive christians could walk into a conservative church and see and do the exact same thing. Um, what this passage, I feel like, doesn't do is give really anyone actual ammunition <laughs> for their, you know, for their particular, any any real or really convincing ammunition for their particular view. Um, what it does and does do very well is explains how Jesus, the person of Jesus, was a change in the faith, how it flipped everything on its head, and and how you know it's it's easy to um, to take passages like this and make them ours, make them um, beholden to our views. But like I think, really, the point of this being in every single gospel, what and, and across the gospels that um, preached more to the Jewish audience or that preached more to a Gentile audience is that this is how we move from the past into the future. And in that way, we should use it to inform, um, you know, to inform 
the future of the church. It's difficult, though. I really, think, and it's complicated. Yeah, I think that one is so extremely slippery. Um, I mean, not to be overgeneralizing, but I think it's true in all matters of faith and morality. Like, there is not a one-size-fit. You can't codify and and tell people what to do. Like, the whole point is that we each have free will in every moment, and we have to mm. have right relation with ourselves and right relation with God. So that if we want to invoke a piece of scripture like that for an action, we've really, really prayed on it. Hmm. Because it is yeah, so and- multi-purpose, you know, it could apply in so many directions and you just couldn't tell everybody, you know, use it in these ways and don't use it in these other ways. It's up to the individual. <laughs> the thing that really, I think, fascinates me about this, and it's not like a, a deep thought or a particularly um inspiring one but it is that um a lot of people will think okay well this is an example of jesus you know showing that we need to maintain a certain level of decorum or a focus you know on on um, respect for the house of the lord and and i i would say it, it actually kind of to me reflects the opposite that Jesus healed people in the temple that day just like he healed people in someone's house in other parts of the gospel just like he goes out to um, to an area where they're planning on stoning a woman and he stops that it doesn't matter the venue that Jesus enters it is the house of the Lord when Jesus, when Jesus goes is to there. Yeah. Yeah, and he and and he turns any place into a holy place and he gets down to business when he gets there. The business that he that he is in is the business of healing. Mm-hmm. And uh, and that is so much more important. I love that about Jesus. It's like he he there's very few examples of him being angry, uh, but this is one where it's like, yeah, but the anger is kind of secondary here. He just wanted yeah. to get all the nonsense out get of the it way, out. The fluff out of the yeah. way. Let's yeah. Get, let's get down to the healing. Yeah. Let's do some good. Ugh. I love it. You know, that is such an important aspect. I I have a I have a um <laughs> I have a problem where I speak too broadly. Uh but I feel like I encounter this in a lot of like um um revolutionary thought or like activism thought where there's a big focus on turning the tables and I don't see as much focus on like this is what we showed up to do instead Mm. you know whether or not there are tables that need to be turned to make space for it and because you can start you can start doing wonderful things in your living room you can start doing wonderful things in the park and then if you need to turn some tables because there are tables in the way where you are then you need to turn some tables. But yeah. you don't want to go out looking for tables to turn. I think that's important. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, it's um, a, lot of, a lot of progressive um, attitude or revolutionary attitude is more focused on the tearing down than the rebuilding. And, you know, you could argue, well, you have to tear down in order to rebuild, right? We can't. Um, we can't build 
a, a house on a shaky foundation. We have to dig the foundation out and rebuild it. But the building is the important part. Demolition takes a heartbeat. Um, tearing something down takes a long time. Healing is what takes the real work. Healing is what takes the real power. But that demolition um, can really raise the heart rate and it can feel yeah. exciting and it can feel it's like so a whole identity and a whole narrative. Yeah. And like I watch myself, uh, you know, as many times in my life I've picked battles I should not have picked. And it's just because I wanted mm. to pick a battle that day, you know, <laughs> that didn't go well. No, no. And, and I think that if, if your entire focus, and this is where I take a little bit of issue with the deconstruction crowd of Christianity, I love you guys. All right, listen, I love you. I'm not criticizing your your view, and I, I think that it is important to pick the things apart that we find toxic and, and negative and um, that perpetuate unhealthy things that the church does, but what um, what happens when it's all gone? Are we going to build a new church? Are we going to make something better uh, instead of the thing that was there before? I, I thought it might be interesting. I'm going to read this section in John 2 where this same story is told. I, I, I read in, in one interpretation that um, the, in some case, some people believe that there were actually two instances of Jesus cleansing the temple that they didn't necessarily take place at the same time. And I think this is one of those cases where people might argue that this is a different scenario entirely, but it's very, very hard not to reflect these things onto each other. So this is in John 2. It starts at verse 13. It says, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So the timing of the year is exactly the same. Um, in the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What signs do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. Then therefore he was raised from the dead. His disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Um, we have a simultaneous thing that John does, which is um, creating a, a more mystifying version of Jesus, but then also like over-explaining what the... He said this because then this is what we were supposed to take away from it, and then everyone believed that <laughs> Jesus was the Christ forever and ever. Amen. Thank you, John. Um, does, <laughs> does the image of Jesus having a weapon change your no. thoughts about this passage? It makes, it makes it even more fun to picture. Because, again, I'm wanting to picture this going down. That's immediately where my brain goes. I just imagine, like, I imagine walking into, I don't know, like, a, a, an old church in Europe and there's a lot of tourist stands or something. 
for, for <laughs> you know, knickknacks and postcards and stuff. And somebody yeah. just coming in and start tipping things over and chasing people out <laughs> with a whip. Like, I love Jesus and I think Jesus is beautiful and full of love. And there's just something so funny about this image and there's no way that you could be there and be like, that's chill. <laughs> that's fine. <laughs> There, that's my guy. This is this is fine. I'm not nervous at all. Like you'd be like, what is going on? Oh my God, do I even? What is going on? <laughs> um, the church I went to today is um, is a part of uh, sort of a group of like a monastery and a convent, and they have a statue garden. It is a tourist destination essentially. There's a big, and I think I've talked about it on the show before. It's called the Grotto. It's in Portland. It's beautiful. If you haven't been there, please go. Mm. Um, but there is a big rock wall on sort of the buttes on the eastern edge of uh, Portland. And there is a big rock wall that they have carved out and made a statue of Jesus, uh, of Mary holding Jesus after he's been taken down off the cross. And this is, I think it's the, uh, the Church of the Sorrowful Mother or something like that. Anyway, everyone calls it the Grotto. But... Because it's kind of a tourist place as well as a church, I, you know, when I was going there, it's a little bit, it's kind of far away from where I live, but parking was very hard, and and people were kind of, most of the people that were there, you could kind of tell were there for the, the like, statue garden and the, the touristy aspect of it rather than the mass itself. And, and it did, I had this little feeling of, like, oh, this feels kind of weird. Yeah. They have a gift shop. Oh God. They have like yeah. an actual gift shop. And and so it, in my heart, I know that what they're doing with this church, they sell things because they have to keep, it's a massive plot of property in a city that has skyrocketing property values. And, and I'm sure that they, they have a lot of overhead and, uh, and they have to keep this place clean and maintained. And so they sell books and they sell St medallions and they even sell here's one thing they sell holy water <laughs> oh no <laughs> i gotta say that to me is very weird that is weird that that that's very very strange that's strange anyway going to a place like this i have a feeling like oh, i just wish all these I wish all these tourists would like, this is not, they're not here to worship, right? Mm. It's like I came, but then I have, I almost realized that in my, in my desire to flip tables, I like became a Pharisee Hmm. that these people were in a Catholic space who may not have been Catholic. They were in a Christian space. They may not have even been Christian. And, and here I was being like, oh, I wish all these tourists would go away. Go away. When they could, they, they might've heard, right? They might've heard. Yeah. a bit of the word yeah. and thought, wow, this like Christianity thing is worth looking into. Yeah. So in that way, like, I, That's it's, interesting. Such a, it's such a difficult thing. Yeah. It's hard to, it's hard to tackle. I guess the question would be to like, you know, if a homeless woman needed to give birth, could she walk in there and, and would people take care of her in there or would they be like, you're getting blood on the gift cards? Or, or the postcards or whatever, you know, like, it's that's the very, question. Like, yeah. can both things coexist or not? D- does the business there end are... up taking priority over what the church is supposed to provide? And that's the, when it would become a problem. 
I would think. That's absolutely right. There's a lot of homeless camps in Portland, um, and they're everywhere, and they um, tend to pop up. They're there for a few days, and then um, in the property owners call the city or whatever, and they clear them out. As long as I can remember, on the outside fence of this place, there's a large grass patch before the road, and it is lined with tents. And as far as I can tell, it's been the same tents there for about a year. Yeah. So, you know, in a That's way, good. it feels to me. Yeah, I mean, Catholic organizations are known for their charity, although they're also known for a lot of other things sure. that are not as as great. But the thing that interests me about John's retelling of the story is that Jesus says, "Yeah, tear it down. I'll rebuild it in three days," which is again like it does in Matthew. Uh, the story is is um, emphasizing the the good that will be done with this new mm-hmm. way, with this new message. Uh, yeah, tear down the old church, fine, but we're going to build it right back, and we're going to yeah. do something with it. We're truly going to uh, we're we're truly going to focus on what good God can do, and and of course, John like over over explains it and says actually you know he was talking about his body and then he died and he, he was raised up Thank you, um, john. but obviously yeah it's, it's thanks thanks john uh, <laughs> but for the people the in church the is yeah <laughs> the church is the body of christ though so it's like even if that is what john's saying about it's here it's like it's not well then it's metaphorical too because if we're the body of the church is the body of christ on earth and Anyway, speaking of tangents, um, I wanted to go through um, the different ways that this passage has been used throughout history to argue for certain interpretations of it, because I think it's really interesting, and it kind of just it piggybacks, and it, and it rides along nicely with what we've been talking about. And the different ways that this has been used is equal parts amazing, astonishing, and horrifying um, in the different ways that people have decided that this is what the passage means. So, um, first of all, the argument, there is there is an argument of, like, is this a historical passage or is this a metaphorical passage? Origen, who was a third century theologian, said that the um, this actually isn't a historical event, that this was something that was metaphorical, um, like a lot of people interpret, like Jonah and the whale, um, that it exemplifies something about how God acts in the world, but it doesn't mean a specific thing. Um, there was a, there was a, um, uh, so Augustine of Hippo, um, used actually this passage to justify the use of violence by Christians, and you'll actually see this later on. There are folks who use this as a justification for the Crusades, which is insane to me. So you can see an angry Jesus. You can see a Jesus who is uh, dissatisfied with the way that society has decided to take on worship and take on the Word of God. But how on earth can you take a passage like this and say, well, look, violence was okay, when Jesus did it, so now we can go conquer lands and, and persecute people who aren't following the faith that we're following. 
I mean, it would that, have been funny if they it. did the crusades like this, where it's just one guy goes to each place and he just knocks something over. <laughs> <laughs> And it's like, you guys need to do things differently. <laughs> you know, if they actually did that, then that, you know, would have been just funny. <laughs> it would be funny, yeah, if, some, if someone did like a Johnny Appleseed thing, but instead yeah, just I mean, the churches you know, and knock their tables over. Yeah, just one guy, you know. Or a instead viral of sensation. A, Jesus wasn't like, everybody let's go in there with knives. You know, <laughs> he didn't do that. <laughs> That, yeah, that would be a different story. Yeah. yeah, take a sword and take your yeah, take your sword and shield and yeah, and then yeah, it's it's actually yeah, that that part is baffling. It's crazy. Um, John Calvin, who is a very well known uh, figure in history, also defended himself by using the purification of the temple when he was accused of having helped to burn alive uh, Michael Servetus, a theologian who denied the divinity of Jesus. So we have seen this, like we said earlier on. We have seen this passage throughout history being used just to, it was uh, Bernard of Clairvaux who used this passage to justify the Crusades, fighting the pagans with the same the same zeal that Jesus displayed against the merchants um, was a way to salvation. So, like, I hope that we have in this conversation, and I think that we have, avoided um, pushing a particular message as far as a, a theology of, uh, you know, pr the progressive thing is right, or the conservative thing is right. And, and to me, uh, I, th I think that we've, we've steered clear of that. But I think we have touched on the importance of focusing on what is true and good about what a church can be, what a temple can be. Absolutely. Uh, and what is, to be, what is to be done in the wake of destruction as opposed to the focus being on the destruction. Yeah, like the destruction can be over very quickly, but what happens afterwards is the thing that's truly important. And, you know, that um, that the Pharisees immediately, as soon as someone challenged their way, um, it, it was more ammunition for a group of people that were already out to get Jesus to say, well, now look what he's doing. He's destroying our temple. He's ruining everything. He made a big mess. And, uh, and what a horrible thing that was. The time Jesus made a big old mess. <laughs> um, was there anything else that you, you felt like you wanted to touch on about all this that, that is, um, I, I, I love this conversation. I feel like I have a, a deeper understanding of the passage and, and something to take with me through the week. <laughs> um, I wanted to ask you um, do you have any thoughts on uh, on Walter Wink who's Walter Wink he is um, a, a biblical historian his writing is really interesting to me I think his most accessible piece is about the Sermon on the Mount and it just reinterprets um, the main points of the Sermon on the Mount in terms of, like, uh, uh, in the context of the laws of the time. Um, and it's something I would recommend to you and to any listeners. And I would be really interested to know your thoughts about Absolutely. it as a piece. Yeah, it may. Yeah, he, thank he, you for recommending that. 
Definitely. He's postulating basically that the Sermon on the Mount is, uh, is, is inciting revolutionary action through um, over-compliance that gives you back power. Mm. So, like, the most famous thing being, like, to turn the other cheek. Um, I guess you wouldn't hit a slave with a right hand. You'd only hit an equal with your right hand. So yeah. if you were struck by a master with, with their left hand, if you presented the opposite cheek, you'd be inviting them to hit you again, but as an equal. Wow. And he goes through each point in the sermon like that, and it, it blew my mind. Um, so I highly recommend. I've never, yeah, I've never heard that interpretation of it. And it ties in really nicely with, obviously, what we've been discussing, what we're talking yeah. about here. Because um, when Jesus came, to um, to start the ministry and and was starting to make himself visible to people, uh, everyone wanted the Messiah to be a warrior. Everyone wanted the Messiah to be um, a military leader, essentially leading the Jewish people to revolution against a government that was oppressing them. Because what those people were focused on at that time was the earthly ramifications of you know their their lives that they were focused too much on what was happening in the physical world and jesus like he did in the sermon on the mount um and and in this moment uh i I feel like he always surprised people they wanted a military leader they wanted someone that was going to lead a revolution and he did he started a revolution it just wasn't what they were expecting it was turned on its head it was upside down and and uh, and even if you do have to, we've said upside down or flipping things around or flipping the script or flipping tables a lot during this. This may be the the overall theme of of this episode. of the conversation. Yeah. Yeah, but that's but that's what that's what Jesus did so well was, um, if you think that um, that God will treat you one way, it, this is. I think the core of like the redemptive message message of Jesus is that um, you think that the laws that you have not obeyed by the Old Testament are going to exclude you. Uh, You think that you're not being um, from the tribes of Israel will exclude you from the salvation of God. Let me assure you that actually the thing that you thought was true is absolutely untrue, that, um, that revolution will not come through violence. It will come through uh, upending existing institutions, finding new and and better answers to our problems, and it will come through peace, and it will come through love. And uh, I think that's a a nice way to end the the episode, don't you think? (laughs) Uh, I've really enjoyed talking with you. (laughs) Me too. Do you have any, um, before we end, do you have any plugs that you want to throw out for people where they can find you or where they can check out your work? Um, You can find me uh, on YouTube. Um, I'm under my own name, Ember Knight. There is a new anime YouTube show called The Ember Knights that now is beating me in the algorithm, so be sure to not click on that. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I'm so mad. Um, But I make a a web series that is on YouTube. It's called The Ember Knight Show. It's an instructional etiquette series um, about feelings and good manners. uh, And the two-part finale for that web series will be out um, in August or September of this year. So subscribe and stay tuned. 
Wonderful. Thank you so much for joining me. I really enjoyed this conversation. Uh, I would love to have you back sometime if the situation allows. And um, yeah, thanks again for joining me. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. This week's poem is by Dennis Spilchuk. It's called Jesus Cleansing the Temple. I felt compelled to express my opinion. Thanks, everybody. Morning star rise, your life in my mind. Oh, to rest my restless head, oh, to rise up from the dead. I stand out in the open, scream at the top of my lungs. I'm living out your message, the revealer of your love. Oh, morning star, rise your life in my mind. Oh, to rest my restless head, oh, to rise up from the dead. Deep calls unto deep.